this coming year they'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of Lumpur Cha's birth in Lumpur Liam and the Sangha have arranged that uh, carved stone, sandstone pillar has been erected on the site of the house where Lumpur Cha was born. And it's uh, also a reminder of how long it's been since he died, roughly 25 years. So for many of the <coughs> newer generation of Sangha members and lay, lay practitioners, they know Lumpur Cha through his teachings in books and audio, through anecdotes and stories, and then hopefully also through living examples of his the older Sangha members who trained with him. And you might say, have a little bit of Lumpur Cha in them. But when we think about Lumpur Cha's teaching and tradition and way of practice, <clears throat> especially for newcomers, it sometimes can be a little bit, seem confusing or contradictory with all the different stories and talks. Because every, of course, every talk or every anecdote is referring to a particular situation or has its own context. And now so long has passed since he was alive. The context may be lost or the situation we might not fully appreciate when we read or hear something. <coughs> but you get certain themes coming through in his teachings and in recollections of his teachings and his way of practice. And then of course as we practice ourselves, maybe we over time come to reconcile and understand more deeply why uh, there seem to be these contradictions and how to overcome them or reconcile them. Like one quote somebody made at that meeting in the UK was that um, one time Lumpur Cha said that the Dhamma is about letting go, but the Vinaya is holding on, or is about holding on. And these two different parts of the practice often do bring up some misunderstanding or uncertainty or doubt 
when do I hold on, when do I let go, what is correct letting go, do I need to hold on to anything or should I hold on to everything. But just that phrase is something that's useful to reflect on. We know ultimately the Dhamma is practice for relinquishment, letting go, giving up of wrong views and attachment, clinging. But then we also know that the Buddha taught us to uphold the Vinaya training, the Patimokkha, and all the rules of training are important and we shouldn't be careless or heedless with them. So we have to approach these two different aspects of the practice with some wisdom and, uh, and wise reflection. Again, Lumpur Cha's teachings help over time maybe to draw this distinction out, you know, when to let go, when to hold on. In the beginning of our practice, we tend to have come from a background being mostly Westerners, Western Buddhists, a background of independence and you might even say rebelliousness. And just to be brought up in a non-Buddhist society, non-Buddhist family maybe, to take the step of learning Buddhism, learning meditation and then committing to actual training as a monk requires a certain independence of mind, being willing to do something that's not normal, it's out of the norm, out of the box. And in one context, that's something very praiseworthy. But then, of course, we come into the robes, into the training of the monastic training. Then we're learning a whole new discipline with a purpose for training the mind towards ultimate liberation. But it's a whole new system that we have to learn. So we do have to learn to hold on to it in the beginning. So we can get that frustration coming up where our independence of mind and our cultural background is not necessarily, necessarily supportive of keeping, holding on to a lot of training rules. As Westerners, we tend to approach Buddhism from a more intellectual background, reading, listening to the Dhamma, thinking about it, philosophizing about it, quoting it. Another reflection that came up in England, this is one that Lumpur Sameta mentioned that on one of Lumpur Charles trips to the West, to England. 
there was a layman who was helping to upatak the monks and Buddhist monks being very new in the West. This layman had faith and interest to learn and train but was completely raw and didn't know about the Vinaya. And we know Lumpur Cha is famous for his attention to detail with the training, what we call the core what. So with things like bowls we train. Lumpur Cha taught us to treat the bowl, monk's bowl like the Buddha's head. Really look after it, protect it, clean it, sun it, air it. Not to put it in a place where it can be at risk, damage. Not to scrape things in it, say when you eat, not to scrape it with your spoon. When you wash it, not to scrape it and bang it, and so on. Many rules of training and practices to do with the bowl that we've inherited from the time of the Buddha, partly because bowls in the past were much more fragile than today, partly as a training in mindfulness and just that perception of the bowl as your main friend and your main source of your, your lifestyle and your living, your living as it were by going on arms round. So it's a vital part of our bhikkhu's requisites. So Lumpur Cha always emphasized looking after the robes, looking after the bowl. And this layman in England, Lumpur Cha, spent a lot of time teaching him how to look after the bowl, wash it, dry it, sun it, put the bowl cover on, where to, where to store the bowl and so on. One day, one day he just made the comment to this man that he said, um, Lumpur Samedo, Ajahn Samedo in those days, will teach you about Nibbana. I'll teach you how to wash a bowl. It's maybe just pointing again to some of this cultural context that we've come into Buddhism and we love to read about Nibbana, the jhanas, all the, you might say, the interesting, tasty stuff. We love to read about it, think about it, discuss it. But often we overlook the more obvious areas of practice, the mundane, the repetitive, say something like a bowl. But Lumpur Cha, with his great wisdom, saw the value of, saw the whole training from A to Z, start to finish, and how important it is to get even these most basic things right first, learn to look after the bowl, the requisites, follow the rules of training with these simple daily activities, because this will actually be part of what gets you to Z, Nibbana and liberation. And especially nowadays, it's not just a Western thing. Buddhists everywhere, Asian Buddhists, Western Buddhists, you know, we, we all have a lot of knowledge and we like to discuss and read. But And that's important as well. But 
we also have to see the value of the most basic training rules. Another comment Lumpur Cha made was that you keep the Sekia Watas, the most basic, what you might call minor rules, but you learn to keep them like they're a Parajika rule, the most serious or grave offences a bhikkhu can commit. Because we're really here to thoroughly root out the causes of suffering from our mind, the kilesas, greed, anger and delusion and all their offshoots. And even minor training rules can help root out and do help root out kilesa. And if we neglect them knowingly, consciously, then there's a good chance when it means we're neglecting kilesas, kilesas. Mental conditioning that is a cause for suffering is getting neglected from our mind, from our practice. And so our practice will, as long as that continues, will not bear fruit or not bear the fruit that we wish for, the liberation and the Nibbana that we're seeking. Lumpucha emphasized as we read and hear from his teachings, what we call the Korwat, monastic training rules, the Vinaya, he emphasized it over and over again. Because of our tendency, the tendency of the Kalesas to seek independence, to be rebellious, to be lazy, to be careless, to dismiss the minor for some, maybe looking for something more superior, higher. But until we have a firm grounding in our practice of Vinaya and Korwat, well maybe it's too quick to dismiss it. And Lumpucha understood this point very well, it seems, so he's constantly emphasizing. Another thing is even with the best intention and will in the world to keep up the Korwat, the Vinaya, because of the conditioning of the Kalesas, then we still lapse, forget, lose our way. like wearing a robe when you go traveling out of the monastery. If you travel all day, many hours, and moving from a vehicle to a building or going here, going there, your robe gradually gets loose. And so after a while, you usually look for a suitable place just to adjust your robe, maybe put it on again or just adjust it because it starts to slip, gets loosened. A core one is like that. It gets loose. It needs, we need to re-establish it over and over again, come back to it over and over again, re-establish mindfulness and clear comprehension over and over again. That's the way we train. What Lumpocha was pointing to was that to really root out Kilesa, to see and root it out, we have to have that firmness and stability of mind that usually we talk about in the practice of mindfulness and samadhi, but it's developed through the sila, through the korwat and the vinaya. That naturally runs into the development of samadhi. 
See, one of his favorite themes to, of, in his talks and teaching was sense restraint. You know, the bhikkhu's life is founded on sense restraint. Because <coughs> this is, again, where we develop this firmness, stability of mind, the kind of unwavering states of mind that lead on to samadhi practice, and the development of states of samadhi. Your sense restraint, meaning learning to be composed, mindful with our senses, with sense contact, which is obviously going on all the time, whether we're meditating or we're doing other activities, whatever the posture, whatever the moment of the day or night, sense contact is taking place through the five external senses or the, the mind door. And this is the first place where we have to practice, as it were, in the training of the mind for liberation. In sense contact is constantly affecting us, is triggering emotional reactions, whether it's just a slight twinge of emotion or desire, a slight movement in the mind, or sometimes great surges or powerful um, or even dramatic emotional states arising. It all begins with sense contact. So that's both the place where we develop mindfulness, restraint, composure, but also wisdom grows out of that. So one of the phrases you hear over and over again in the Thai talks, this one, my yin di, my yin rai, not in delighting in or averse to. It's that learning to develop that ability to be mindful, clearly comprehend what we're doing and what's going on and what sense contact we're having and to not give in to the delight or the aversion that it stimulates out of habit, out of conditioning. And it's one of the, say, the classic, or the sort of the, the pictures people have in their mind of monks training with Lumpo Cha was this sense of unwaveringness in all situations, this composure, the restraint, not obviously giving in to kilesa, not obviously giving in to, say, excitement and stimulation when uh, pleasant things happen, pleasant with pleasant sense contact, and now not obviously giving in to displeasure with unpleasant sense contact. Again, in our cultural setting, it sounds very austere, but then monasteries should probably sound austere places, but not in a sense of um, blind suppression without wisdom or purpose. But you know, there is an austerity to what we're doing in learning, not if we want, really want to develop freedom of mind not to be slave to craving and attachment, where well, we have to have that 
firmness of mind, not to always give in to emotional reactions, liking and disliking. We're developing that equanimity. So on the very least, we don't display it in our speech and our external behavior, <coughs> the delighting in the, the, the aversion too, so that we can have a chance to refine our awareness and turn it inwards to deal with the, the root causes of those different mental states and reactions. And that obviously we do develop through meditation, sitting and walking meditation is where you develop that real refined mindfulness of sense contact. But just in daily life, learning to be aware enough not to move towards the pleasant all the time with our eyes, ears, nose, tongue. Not to move away from the unpleasant. So more often than not, that's coming up with people and learning not to give in to our aversion when it comes up with people who have different views and opinions and different characters to us. Not to give in to the delight, looking and seeking out companionship, maybe with lay people or particularly members of the opposite sex. Just the most obvious areas where delight and aversion come in is the way we're practicing sense restraint. Lumpur Cha said, Lumpur, sense restraint brings a beauty to our practices. Again, it's one of the visions of a samana, is one who is restrained in the senses, composed as they walk about, do their business, whether they're meeting people or they're on their own in the forest or out in public. You know, that, the ideal is to develop that continuous sense restraint through continuous effort, continuous paying attention to oneself, what one's doing, where one's going. And it lays the foundation, for, say, for the deepening of the practice of satipatthana, in mindfulness of the body, sense restraint, mindfulness of the body, you know, they're inseparable. Being mindful of our posture, physically what we're doing, the activities we're involved with, and then our senses, how they're reacting and dealing with each situation. And this is our daily practice. Obviously in the beginning of the practice this set, tends to set up some tension because of our past conditioning. As lay people we're used to being free. We even might see that as something praiseworthy, something to aspire to, not to be controlled by anyone, anything. So sense control or self-control with the sense within sense restraint might not immediately seem an attractive prospect. So it's important to keep reminding ourselves of the Dhamma. That is sense restraint, restraint in the Patimoka, in the Vinaya, in the use of the requisites, and in, in, in our daily interaction with the world. It is leading to a higher purpose, <clears throat> which is that of 
liberation of the mind from defilements. So we have no choice but to start, you might say, skillfully suppressing, suppressing the defilements in our speech and our actions. <clears throat> suppression is often, again, a term modern society you might turn against or think that's a cause for suffering or psychological problems. And in one sense, it can be if it's coming from defilement. But what you might call skillful suppression is the practice of sense restraint, not giving in to every mood, every desire. That can only mean suppressing them, but with mindfulness and clear comprehension. And as you practice meditation, you're suppressing the hindrances, suppressing, again, suppressing craving and attachment, but with mindfulness, comprehension, and ultimately with wisdom. It's with a purpose. And you might say the practice of samadhi is complete suppression of the defilements, of the hindrances. And they're still there underlying our character, our jitter, it's still, they're still able to invade the jitter at any time, but as long as mindfulness and samadhi are there, then they're suppressed, but in a skillful way, so that we can contemplate them when they do re-emerge and surface. But the practice of suppression is something we are really doing on a daily basis, learning not to give in to every desire, you know, around food, around interaction with others, the use of the requisites, around sleep, around everything we do. Sometimes that leads to reactions, so we have times when we let off steam. And as long as it's not outside the bounds of the Vinaya, well, it's quite normal, maybe even something necessary, especially in the beginning of the practice. Sometimes we do, in the appropriate place, we let our steam. Through socializing with other monks, other practitioners, doing things we might not normally do, go for a walk or um, read a book, different, the different things we do, the different activities we do. You know, there is a certain way to relax within the, within the Sangha, within the bounds of the Vinaya. But ultimately we're learning to have enough strength of mind and firmness of mind to be able to be on top of Kilesa. So when the time is right, then one puts forth that effort in all postures, in all activities. You might say we're training towards that, using the Vinaya and the Korwat to really bring up the mindfulness and the ability to keep that firmness of mind on a daily basis. And then through the putting effort into sitting and walking meditation, developing states of calm, samadhi, where the, the hindrances, the kilesas are completely at bay. So we get some 
relief from them, which is also giving us a taste of the liberation <clears throat> that the Buddha was pointing to. Even though, though the word has its connotations, suppression seems like almost the same as something miserable or, or stressful in itself. If it's the cause ultimately for happiness to arise in the mind through developing more self-control, developing the skill of letting go of kilesa, putting the mind onto objects of Dhamma, onto the meditation object, and then allowing wisdom to function, insight to develop, <clears throat> then we can see it is ultimately leading to happiness, the mind, the state, the mind that is free, free from attachment and clinging, free from its conditioning. But to understand that point, we really have to put effort into meditation practice and then we can start to review how the practice of sense restraint, suppression of kilesas in our daily activities, our daily practice has brought us around to that point and then we'll appreciate it for what it is. If we're really to let go of defilements, the mind has to have enough firmness, stillness, and inner contentment that it's willing to do that, willing to let things go, put things down. As we reflect on Lumpur Chao's teachings, you can also see that you know, in the end, these teachings are valuable, you might say invaluable, but they're pointing to or leading us to practice for ourselves. It's one message again that we pick up from his teachings. You know, Lumpur Chao couldn't enlighten us or do the practice for us but he helped to point out the way to do it so that we can liberate ourselves. But if we're always, just say, cherry-picking the teachings we hear or have read, either from the suttas or from Lumpur Chao or other teachers, there's a danger there. We tend to just use the teachings to bolster up the defilements according to our views, our opinions, what we like, what we don't like. And you see that happens a lot. We tend to pick on one quote or one story, one reflection we've heard. And that seems to fit with us. So it may be you know, something about the way to use a certain Vinaya rule or a certain situation or how much we should meditate or how much we should chant and so on. You, know, you can find different quotes and stories to fit what you might feel is right or correct. We also have to be a little bit aware how that can just be harboring or protecting the kilesas as well. 
probably find within Lumpur Chao's teachings or within the suttas and the Vinaya tr- from the Tripitaka, you know, there's something that will fit every opinion you have. You can seem to find evidence and quotes to back it up. But in the end, we have to internalize the practice. You have to really bring it in, experience the practice, and then experience or review what has led to what. And if it would seem, if you're honest, most practitioners who seem to have realized Dhamma, you find there's very there's common themes in what they say. Just learning to maintain the Vinaya, put effort into that to develop that firmness of mind, put effort into developing mindfulness, which leads on to states of samadhi and then cultivating wisdom through contemplating the three characteristics. And this is something all the teachers seem to have done, but you can't just quote what they've said and rely on that alone. We have to turn, turn it into effort and put it into effort in our own practice. Like you'll find sometimes Lumpo yeah, would appear to react one way in one situation with one person and then a totally opposite way in another situation with another person. So then you might bring up the doubt, well, which is right? <clears throat> Back to the, you know, do we cling to the Vinaya? Do we let go with the Dhamma? Do we cling to the Dhamma? Do we let go of the Vinaya? These are things we have to really contemplate and re- resolve through the practice. I remember one monk talking about how walking on Bindabhata, and then, you know, the typical monk, young monk suffering is dropping the, the bowl lid of the senior monk when you're carrying the senior monk's bowl, you carry two bowls. Obviously, it's, sometimes it's difficult. And so you make a slip and you drop the senior monk's bowl lid, maybe when you're receiving it from him, passing it to him. And then there's the dread, the embarrassment of being unmindful in front of the teacher and other monks, and there's the dread, am I going to get scolded? You know, one monk said, well, I got, all I got was a big smile from Ajahn Chah. Maybe that monk was suffering so much, Ajahn Chah felt he needed just some compassion and reassurance. And just the reflection, that it's such a small thing, isn't it? You drop a bowl in, it's just a piece of metal dropped on the ground. But then other monks will tell you that they dropped a bowl lid and they got scolded for being careless and heedless and had a kind of a stinging sensation in their mind for the rest of the day, having been stung by Lumpur Chao. You get both monks who overslept, come out, miss Bindabhata and meet Ajahn Chah ready for a scolding, but they just get a smile. Ajahn Chah says, how, oh yeah, sleep is delicious, sleep is present, is pleasant. But other monks will tell you their story, and it came out late, 
missed the morning meeting because I was oversleeping and got a hiding from Ajahn Chah, a verbal lashing from Ajahn Chah. So clearly Ajahn Chah was in a position to use the Dhamma Vinaya to teach, to help people see their own minds. But when it becomes a quote or something that we pass on, it's not always. The quote itself is how we use it, isn't it? We have to use with circumspection, be aware of time and place, and then use that <clears throat> apparent contradiction when you come back to your own practice. Where do you need to be more, holding on more to the Vinaya if we're getting loose? Where do we need to let go more? Partly you see through the reactions that come up in your, in your practice. We can, sometimes monks become, so, they cling on to the Vinaya so much, it starts to be a source of suffering. They're getting angry with all their friends, telling their friends off when they don't keep a certain rule, which is probably the worst time to tell other monks off when you're angry. But then that person, that monk, may be getting to see that the Vinaya, holding on to the Vinaya causes them so much suffering. Then after a while they decide they don't want that suffering anymore, so they're just going to let go. And they let go of all the Vinaya and very quickly end up disrobing. It's a very common pattern you see amongst just this sort of imbalance, where to hold on, where to let go. Obviously we do need to hold on to the Vinaya. The Buddha said even an arahant should keep the Vinaya, if only to be an example to another, all the other bhikkhus. But then we don't want to hold on so tight that it becomes a source of suffering. But that balance and that understanding we can only find through the practice. We can't just learn it from the books or from quotes. You have to live it, practice it, and then you'll find that balance for yourself. So coming up to a hundred years of Lumpur Cha since his birth, probably what everybody feels is gratitude and that sense of good fortune having come into contact with a great master, Buddhist master, even if we didn't meet him personally, just to be, have come in contact with his Sangha, his teachings, the, what we call the tradition. It really is our great good fortune. I don't think anyone can dispute that. But how we make use of this tradition, these teachings, we do have to consider that wisely and try and you know, follow in his footsteps, see the value of appreciating the whole of the practice, the Dhamma, the Vinaya, and every step of the path, the whole Eightfold Path, and every step along that path from A to Z, beginning to end. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.